The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. You'd like to think that as soon as you're done writing your manuscript and your proposal and you send it to an agent, the agent's there sitting by the mailbox ready to read it as soon as it comes and is can't wait with their pen in hand to send you an acceptance letter. But sadly, that's not how it works. <laughs> if only, right? When agents and acquisitions editors get unsolicited proposals. They throw them into a stack in the corner of the office. And back in the day, this was an actual physical pile of books. And once the pile of books was as tall as an intern, that somebody would sit down with the stack and read through it. They'd brew a pot of coffee, and in a few hours, they would go through hundreds of proposals and manuscripts. And usually, every single one of those manuscripts would get rejected. But sometimes a proposal jumps out and grabs the agent's interest or grabs the intern's interest who then takes it to the agent who then takes it on uh, through the publication process. So how can that lucky proposal be for your book? Well, luck has little or nothing to do with it. Uh, There is a way to get out of the slush pile, and our guest today will show it to you. I'm very excited. Her first novel, Avow to Cherish, went from slush pile to to book to major motion picture. And 26 years later, and 40 uh, 40 book years later, she's still creating stories that touch hearts and lives. Deborah Rainey, welcome back to the Christian Publishing Show. It's great to be with you again, Thomas. So tell us your story of your first book. How did you get out of the slush pile? Uh, Did it just get accepted by the very first agent? No. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I sent at least 20 different manuscripts. And this was back in the day when you had to print the manuscript out and send it physically to the publisher. Um, And I got at least 17 rejections, most of which said, Dear author, we are sorry that this manuscript, which we have not touched, does not meet (laughs) our current needs. And it was very clear that the manuscript came back in pristine shape that no one had even looked at it. I did get a few um, nice personal notes that I could tell that someone had read it, but it was still a rejection. And the reason was I was making some very, very typical mistakes that first writers make. Um, I want to jump in and tell you the story of my husband's experience with the slush pile, because it actually was, uh, Ken, my husband, uh, has had two children's picture books published. And when he was first ready to start pitching that book, we actually um, left our little Kansas home and flew to New York and pounded the streets of New York with his portfolio and went to some publishing houses. And we we saw... Uh, way more than uh, piles tall as interns. We saw multiple (laughs) piles lined up along the wall as tall as interns. And we saw the day's mail at one of the big five publishing houses. I don't remember which one it was even, but um, literally a mail cart that was overflowing with manuscripts. And uh, that was very daunting. It, It really made me realize when I started writing a few years later what the competition is out there. It's huge. And whether it's an email box or a, a you know physical pile of manuscripts, it, there's a lot of competition out there. And I can speak to that. Back when I was literary agent, you know, but day one of being a literary agent, I'm a Steve Lobby agency agent. I've got my new website, and I get 
in, I think, two proposals that first day, right? Nobody knew I was an agent. I wasn't in any of the market guides or, or anything yet. But I got two proposals. And I was so excited, and I read them, and I sent back these really personalized notes. And the authors were like, and there were rejections, of course, but they were like, thank you so much. You know, they were so encouraged. And then the next day I got five. And then the next day I got like 10. And then the next day I got 20. And I was like, I'm not going to be sending personalized notes to all of these people. And a, a lot of the proposals were clearly not what I was looking for. Because I had on the Steve Lobby website, here are the kinds of books I represent. Here are the kinds of books I don't represent. And some of these books were not even close. They weren't even like Christian books. It's like, I'm a Christian literary agent for Christian books. And your book about Jesus landing in a medium-class spaceship to talk to Vladimir Putin is not the kind of Christian book I represent. (laughs) And yes, that was actually in one of the proposals I got. Which, by the way, I also didn't take fiction. (laughs) Uh, well, that is so true that the very first thing you need to do to stay out of the slush pile is be sure that you are send, you're targeting your publishing house right, or correctly, I should say, um, because it, it does you it is a complete waste of time to send your book to a publisher who doesn't publish what you write. Um, it seems like a simple thing, but um, trust me, they are not going to change their mind and suddenly start writing, you know, Christian or start publishing Christian fantasy uh, just because your book is so wonderful. They have, um, you know, they have a spot for what they publish, and you need to be sure you're targeting the right publisher. So how did you do that? So you sent out your book, you got these 17 Mm -hmm. rejections back. How did you learn to put the right bait for the right kind of fish? Well, the first thing that I I wasn't sure whether I wanted my book to be for the Christian market or the secular market. And I probably should have made that decision um, before I started sending out manuscripts. And I actually did change my, I I had two different manuscripts. One of them, um, really the only difference was that in one of my books, my characters actually prayed to Jesus and to God. They they mentioned God. The other one, their faith was just a little more, um, you know, generic. I guess you would say. So the the manuscripts weren't that different. Um, and I actually did end up getting um, offers from both a secular publisher and two Christian publishers. And that made my decision easier who to who to target from that point on, um, because I knew that I, I wanted to write for the Christian market. Um, but I I made a lot of mistakes. Um, it's but for the grace of God that I that I actually did get published because I made so many writing mistakes, let alone um, pitching mistakes. Yeah. So walk us through some of those mistakes. Save us from your pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I thought my book was so absolutely wonderful that. Um, the publishers would want the entire manuscript. They would be mad that I had only sent the required three chapters. And so I sent the entire manuscript. Now, I think because of email, things have changed a little bit and publishers are okay with getting the full manuscript now. Um, but at that time, I, I broke so many rules because I thought I was so exceptional and I was not. I was just one of millions of people trying to get their book published. And, and 
and I will say, having worked with authors, they all think that they're the exception. Like thinking that you're a normal author is the actual exceptional way to think, right? And and it's especially true in Christian publishing, where a lot of authors are writing because they feel like they're called to write, and they, which which is you know very likely God may have called you to write, but just because God called you to write doesn't mean the rules suddenly change and that That's the path correct. gets easier. He may have called you to write just because he wanted you to go through a hard season to show his faithfulness in that hard season, right? God has uh, a bit enigmatic as to his motives, right? We often don't know why he's doing what he's doing or why he's calling us uh, to do the things that he's calling us to do. But I, I do know that, you know, if he calls you to move into a land with giants in the land, he's going to actually have require you to fight those giants yourself, right? He's going to give you the strength, but you've got to fight the giants. And so don't feel like, oh, because I'm called, it's going to be an easy path. It's like, go read the Bible. That's not how it works. That's right. And don't think that just because your first novel was an easy, you know, I mean, as as stories go, um, I had a fairly easy time. I wrote my first novel in five months. I started sending it out within... um, Less than a year, I had three offers for that manuscript, and two years from the date that I started writing, my book was in bookstores. That's not a normal story, and that's not how the rest of my publishing career has gone <laughs> either. So, uh, but I have heard I have heard agents and publishers say that they've had authors tell them that God told me that you should publish my book, and that's that is not a good uh, technique for getting your first book published. Um, go. I, I do think that the fact that that some writers or it's probably the writers who do think they are special, who are have a tough enough skin and um, have the stick to itiveness that it takes to to go ahead and keep getting published. So uh, that's not necessarily a bad trait for a writer to have to think that your book is special, uh, because if it, if it's not special, why why would anybody want to publish it? Um, but that might be a card you want to hold close to your chest until the publisher has said that it's a special manuscript. Also, don't use it in dating, going up to a stranger and saying, "God <laughs> yes. has called you to marry me." <laughs> Bad call. That's not bad how call. Do it. Unless the other person can say, "Yep, he's called me as well." That's right. That's yeah. right. That's the test. It is. And if God's calling somebody else to publish you, you don't need to tell them, right? Because God will tell them. That's right. And your manuscript will speak for itself. That's true. And there are instances of agents or, or publishers who really felt called to publish a book. Right? They they really had a good feeling about it, and so they published it. But I have never heard a single story of that where it came from the author, <laughs> like where the author gave the uh, the publisher a good feeling, right? That's got to come from God or it's got to come from the publisher themselves. It's not going to come from you. Exactly. So what were some of the other mistakes that you made with those early manuscripts? Well, probably the rest of the mistakes that I made had to do with the manuscript not being ready. Um, I was a brand new writer. I had not written, I had not read one book on the craft of writing. Um, I had been told in, in high school and college that I had a gift for writing. And I think that I do. But that doesn't mean I mean, you could have a gift for being a surgeon, but that doesn't mean you're going to perform brain surgery the first day, <laughs> you know, of college or of med school, whatever. So so um, I, I had to learn very quickly, and I am so grateful that the Lord 
uh, led my manuscript to an editor who was so patient with me and who taught me everything I know about writing and and just about the conventions of writing. There were, at, at that time, especially, there were certain expectations of what Christian novels would contain and would not contain. And um, so I needed to know those things. Um, I think writers today, m- for the most part, are much more savvy. They know that they need to go to a writer's conference or they need to read books on the craft of writing. They need to listen to podcasts and all of those things. And that's extremely helpful. That's one of the reasons that I love doing interviews like this. And I love teaching at conferences because those are the things I did not have when I started writing my first novel. And it's easier now, right? Like if you listen to Christian Publishing Show, it's basically a writer's conference session every week, right? The the people that come on the show as guests are top writer's conference speakers, people like Deborah Rainey, right? Like you teach on getting out of the slush pile at a writer's conference, or you can, you know, listen to your interviews on podcasts like this one, and you can learn that without going to the writer's conference. And Deborah Rainey still listens to all of those things and still goes to it whenever I, I almost always go to writers conferences as a teacher, but I always try to sit in on at least one or two classes if, if my schedule allows. So I, I remember um, I was speaking at Mount Hermon years ago, and it was the very last um, optional session of the whole conference. Right. So at this point, people had been in all of their major tracks. They'd gone to all of the breakout sessions. And this is like the lowest attended breakout session because everyone is tired, especially all of the introverted authors. And I remember seeing on the front row of my class, it was not a well-attended class, but on the front row of my class was on some kind of marketing technique. I don't remember. It was, I won't say her name, but it was a uh, household name author that like, if I said her name, everybody would recognize her name. She'd published a lot of very successful books. And there she was on the front row, taking notes to keep up with the breaking trends in marketing. And I, and I remember it's like this, it, this is why she's so successful, because she never lost that teachable spirit. And chances are, she already knew a lot of what I was talking about. But she was there to get that one nugget, or maybe hopefully many nuggets that she didn't have before that were going to give her an edge for her next book. So she wouldn't get replaced by the young whippersnappers who are so, you know, energetic (laughs) and tech savvy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's, there is so much truth to that. And I have always been so impressed. I've seen this, what you're describing many times at conferences where those on faculty who are the, the pros, um, are the ones that are sitting in the classes still soaking up and trying to learn more. Yeah, so walk us through some of those writing conventions that you had to learn the hard way. What are Christian editors expecting to see in Christian manuscripts? And I will say I do a lot of, along with teaching at conferences, I I critique a ton of manuscripts every year. And it's so interesting to me that I see the same five or six mistakes made over and over again. And fortunately, almost all of them are really easy fixes. It doesn't take much to take your manuscript from run-of-the-mill uh, an Every intern is going to going to recognize these problems and toss your manuscript on that slush pile. Um, but if you know them and can fix them before you send your manuscript out, it will make all the difference in the world. Um, probably the first one, and it, it's a tiny thing, and there's a lot of different thoughts about this, but 
to me, it is a huge mark of an amateur writer, and that is overusing adverbs and adjectives. Preach! Preach! <laughs> can I get a witness? <laughs> yes, you can. And it it's funny because I, I don't ever want to take a tool out of a writer's arsenal, and adverbs and adjectives are tools that, you know, that a writer might need. And there are times to use them, but most writers overuse them or abuse them, I would say. And usually what um, a preponderance of adverbs and adjectives is an indication that you are not taking the time to find strong verbs. Um, why use two words? Um, she ran quickly when raced will do, and raced says it so much better. C.S. Lewis once said, use the right word, not its second cousin. <laughs> oh, that's a great quote. Yes. And, and I often, I feel like it's a good exercise. I remember uh, I was going through some writing training. And we had to write a, without using a single adverb or adjective. We had to just learn how to do the correct nouns and verbs. It's a really good wow. exercise. And you'll find really good authors. They'll use maybe one or two adverbs or adjectives in a whole book. I remember I was reading a, a Dresden Files book by Jim Butcher, right? These are all fantastic successes. have sold millions of copies. Everyone's a New York Times bestseller. He does not use adverbs and adjectives, hardly ever. But at one point early in one of his books, he talks about how this man was unwholesomely beautiful. And that man was a vampire, and that was just a delicious oh, the use. There was, there's no word yes. for vampiric beauty, right? But unwholesomely beautiful really captured the seductive nature of this man. And when you are reserved with your adverbs, right? When you're like, I've got five adverbs I'm going to allow in these 100,000 words, you can be really strategic with, with making them work. So I totally agree. Don't You don't have to go full Stephen King and not use them at all. But even Stephen King in his example, he used one adverb. <laughs> so there are times when adverbs can can be used, but they're, they are like a really powerful seasoning. And what a lot of authors, they're, they're like salt, right? And what a lot of authors do is they just dump salt on the dish and it becomes completely unpalatable or you just taste it. Uh, they, they become like the cookies my um, sister once made where she got the salt and sugar mixed oh, up. No. <laughs> completely <laughs> unedible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And again, to me, the biggest thing is that it makes your writing sound amateurish. Um, and one, one of the things that I do, th this is a, a good test for a lot of mistakes writers make, but read your manuscript aloud. If you have a whole bunch of L-Y words in there, you'll start to literally feel it with your mouth. Um, and so that's one of the things that I do. I always go through and do a search for L-Y, and that helps me find a lot of adjectives and adverbs. Um, for a long time, I kept a list beside my computer that had strong verbs um, for words that I use very commonly, like looked and walked and ran and smiled and, you know, those kinds of words. Um, so that I could, instead of, you know, resorting to the easy way out, really, which is what using adverbs and adjectives often is. Um, and I'll tell you another trick that helped me to get rid of a lot of them. I found that I was using them in speaker attributions to show how my character said something. Well, first, another trick that I learned early on in writing was to get rid of as many speaker attributions as I possibly could. And that eliminated them in the first place. If you are 
writing carefully in such a way that your dialogue itself tells the reader how it's being said. You don't need those speaker attributions. Now, I just finished a, a sister series where there were three she's in every, almost every scene, and I, I had to use speaker attributions. It was, it, it was just almost impossible to eliminate all of them. But that is, I search for he said, and uh, he said also captures she said. And if I can get rid of it or replace it with um, a, a beat or a tag, I do that, an action. Yeah, Jerry Jenkins once wrote an entire novel without a, spe- a single speaker attribution, just as an exercise to help him improve his craft. And this is after he'd sold a billion dollars worth of books. So he was continuing to, to push himself to get better. And um, for me, uh, it's B-verbs, was, is, are, am. And you can't write a book without B-verbs. I mean, I'm sure you could. But what, what I would did was I would turn on track changes, and then I would replace every was with was. And so all it would do is trigger a million track changes. It's like this word has been replaced. And then I go through and review the manuscript and make every was give a reason for its existence. Oh, <laughs> it had that's to give good. a reason for the hope that lied within it. And if it didn't give a good reason, <laughs> if I could find a more interesting verb, which was often, I would replace it. And it just made each sentence a little bit stronger. And this kind of sentence strengthening, uh, whether it's reducing B verbs or reducing adverbs and adjectives, um, trained eyes, which is the kind of people reading through a slush pile, see it immediately. They, they, well, you may not notice adverbs and adjectives. I, I guarantee you agents do. <laughs> Editors yes. do. And they know, wow, if this is sprinkled all over in this first page, it's um, going to be sprinkled throughout the whole book. And this is how they're able to go through hundreds of manuscripts in an hour because they're often looking at just a few sentences to know, can you put a good sentence together? Do you know how to subtract the bad words from a sentence so that only the words that remain are the ones that are singing in harmony with each other. Absolutely. And and I have had reader or writers argue with me that readers don't know these rules. They won't know the difference. And that might be true. But if you if your goal is to publish traditionally, you have to get through some gatekeepers first, agents and editors and um, proofreaders and, and all of that. You won't find that publisher if you're making those kind of mistakes. Well, and while readers don't know the rules, they do know what they find interesting and don't find interesting. Yes. And they won't know, oh, this book is so interesting because it's following this rule. Like, for instance, a, a rule in children's books I just learned um, listening to a podcast was ending each page on a cliffhanger. I didn't know this rule. But now as I'm reading, you know, my dozen children's books every day that I seem to be reading right now, <laughs> I'm noticing that the books that my daughter is drawn to are the books that have a cliffhanger at the end, right? So the one she's reading right now is It's Not Easy Being a Bunny, right? The PJ Funny Bunny didn't want to be a bear. He wanted to be a dot, dot, dot. And you had to turn the page to find out what the next animal was. And that creation of tension, tension release, which is one of the rules of writing. It's a more advanced rule. But it's why my daughter likes the book. <laughs> and and so she couldn't articulate. It's like, I think this book uses good use of tension and release. No, she doesn't know any of that. But she does know what she likes. And 
And if you don't want your book to be the kind of book that gets left unfinished, which is most books, right? Most readers don't finish most books. And they hate that feeling, right? Each book they left unfinished on their bookshelf is a little piece of guilt. And so they're really discriminating about what books they buy. And publishers understand that certain books feel fast-paced. And what makes them feel fast-paced? They removed all the unnecessary words. And so they move through the content faster without that fluff. So the reader can't identify the fluff, but they can identify their own boredom. So don't use that as a mistake. Just because the reader can't tell you why it's broken doesn't mean it's not broken. That's true. And that is so interesting what you say about that little bit of guilt for not finishing a book. I had that guilt so badly that until I turned 50, I did not put a book down. I would read every word. Even if I was hating the book, the only thing that would make me put a book down is if it just went too sleazy, you know, if it if it just, you know, became so that as a Christian, I couldn't in good conscience read it. But I read so many books that I wasn't enjoying. And, who, you know, what books did I not get to read? So when I turned 50, I decided life is too short, and now I will give a book 50 pages. And if it hasn't captured me in the first 50 pages, it goes down with no guilt. <laughs> Yeah, you were talking about showing and telling. There was a book I started uh, reading, um, actually listening to it. It's an audio book. And it was telling in every sentence. And I was like, this isn't a novel. This is an expanded outline. <laughs> it's like you published it. It was an independently published book. And it's like this author published this book too soon. And if they would have saved and done a rewrite where they changed each scene from a telling scene to a showing scene, um, suddenly the book would have been interesting. But as it was, I lasted, I don't measure in pages, I measure in minutes. And I think I made about 20 minutes in. And when I realized that that wasn't just because of the preface, that was how every chapter is going to be. I'm like, I, I noped out of there. And uh, <laughs> for, with, with Audible, you can actually get your credit back. You can spend it on a different, more interesting book. They have a satisfaction guarantee. So we talked about uh, abusing adverbs and adjectives. And, and um, what are some other mistakes that people make? Well, show, don't tell was a huge one for me. And in fact, there were two mistakes that I was making in my manuscript. And uh, Bethany House, my publisher, said, we will publish your book if you will fix these two mistakes. And uh, telling instead of showing was one of them. And I, I did some showing, but not nearly enough. And we talked about some of this when, when we spoke before about writing cinematically. But I have learned that if the reader cannot picture your scene on a stage or on a movie screen, you are probably telling instead of showing. And if a writer is having trouble making their word count, if they've uh, contracted for a book that is supposed to be 80,000 words long, and they've told it in 60, it's probably because they are telling instead of showing. Um, so that's, that's a big one. And again, um, that's a little bit uh, bigger rewrite than some of these mistakes are. That's a little bit harder to fix, but it is something that I see over and over. And, and it's one of the reasons why I recommend writing short stories, because you can get feedback and find out that you're showing instead of telling and really understand what that means. Because if you, if you don't know what that means, because that's a term we publishing types and we writer types throw out a lot. If, if you don't know what that is, uh, listen to the episode that I did, that we did together on writing cinematically, and then also listen to my episode with Tim Shoemaker on Show Don't Tell. And I'll have links to both of those episodes in the show notes. But if you're finding out that you're showing instead of telling in a short story, and you write 5,000 words, and you're like, oh, then you rewrite the 5,000 words to not do that, you now have just fixed a major flaw in your writing 
really quickly. <laughs> Whereas if you had to write a whole novel to get that feedback, you just wasted six months of your time because you're now going to have to go back and rewrite every sentence to be a showing sentence rather than a telling sentence. And that 5,000-word story will probably be closer to seven or 10,000 words <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing what you're supposed to do and showing instead of telling. It's really hard to, to do it in uh, a few words. So. And now it's novella link that you can give away, you know, exchange for people's email addresses to build your marketing, and it all works together. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll be happy. They'll be thrilled for those extra words. That's awesome. So, uh, what are some other mistakes that people make? Um, the other big thing that my publisher asked me to change before they would publish my book is. Um, point of view. I was head hopping. And um, most, if you've been to a writer's conference, you've surely heard what head hopping is. And um, a lot of writers, even though they know what head hopping is, they think that they are writing omniscient point of view. Um, but what I find is most people who think they are writing omniscient aren't really writing omniscient. They are just being lazy is what it what it amounts to. And they they think that the reader needs to be able to get into multiple characters' heads in order to get the full story. But the truth is, your writing will be so much better if you um, keep every scene in your book, make it belong to one character. And that means when you write that scene, you can only tell or show, I should say, what that character sees, what that character knows, uh, what that character feels. And the reader should be able to know whose head you're in after the first sentence. Um, you might be able to start the line with, uh, start the chapter or the scene with a couple lines of dialogue. But immediately after that, give us something to see so that so that the story is on screen or on stage and then let us know by a feeling or a vision or whatever uh, that character is doing or however he's acting so that we know that's whose head we are in for this scene now you can show us other characters in the book in in scenes that come later but in that first scene or in that uh, in every scene you should only be in one character's head. And one way, one good drill on this is to write a short story and from a first-person perspective because that forces you and even just the attributions to stay in somebody's head. Now, I know Christian editors don't like first person. Uh, in the secular market, first person is very popular. Historically, it's very popular. But um, everybody wants Jenkins-style third-person limited <laughs> in uh, Christian publishing right now. But it, as a short story exercise, it's a really great exercise to force you to get in to, the, to a single point of view. And when you get good enough at point of view, I, I will say this rule relaxes a little bit, especially in certain kinds of genre fiction. So Dune, the most um, successful fantasy or sorry, sci-fi series ever. Uh, does a lot of head hopping and Herbert's able to get away with it because in the middle of a conversation you're seeing it one person the two people are having a debate or they're they're negotiating something and you see it from that one person's perspective and then you see it from the other person's perspective but his use of point of view and voice is so clear you know it's happening and it adds to the intrigue it, and it made it harder to write not easier to write well, and to me, when that when that is the case, when it is when everything is clear and the reader is never confused, that's when the author is truly writing omniscient point of view. And and it takes practice. Uh, don't think that you can pull off these advanced techniques 
in your first book. And I think this is why, you know, so often it's given as feedback early because it's like, you're not ready. It, 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 it's kind of like my daughter uh, has been you know, learning her letters. She's reading her Dr. Seuss ABC. And the other day I was working on a podcast outline for my other podcast, Novel Marketing. I'm sitting down and she, you know, she crawls on my lap and she looks and, she, and I write the letter A for her and she just stares at the paper as if I've done this magical thing. And then I write the letter B and she's getting all excited because, you know, the letters that she sees in her children's books, she's now seeing daddy create out of nothing. And I'm like, I so want to teach you how to outline a podcast. But before I can do that, I got to teach you how to write. And before I do that, you got to learn your letters and you got to learn how to talk. And there are advanced techniques that you have to kind of earn your way into learning as a writer. And you're not going to get there if you've only been writing for a year or so. Yeah, but that that reaction that your daughter had, that amazement that she had, is exactly how I felt when I finally started to get point of view. Um, that that was it just made all the difference. And the thing I love about point of view is it yes, it's harder to write that way. It's harder to stay in one character's head for the entire scene. But what it means is that it, it opens up so many doors for um, for uh, suspense and for tension and for all the things that you need for a good scene because. You you can have your character looking, let's say she's looking at the man she loves and his face is red and he looks angry and she thinks, oh no, it's over for us. And then we switch to the next scene in his point of view and we find out he's choking to death or he's having a heart attack or it's something <laughs> completely different than what she thought it was by looking at him. Um, it, to me, it, it's a similar thing to movies, which which really are more omniscient. We get to see more characters' point of view. But those actors who can speak were, you know, they can speak volumes just by the expression on their face. That's what not head hopping does for a character for a book. That's great. So we talked about abusing adverbs and adjectives, point of view mistakes, telling, not showing. What are some other mistakes that make uh, agents and editors nope right out of the proposal? <laughs> this is a kind of similar to the show, don't tell, but I see so many talking heads. Um, I see characters having a conversation, but we can't picture where they are or what they're doing. And I think when we spoke before, I told you the story about that wonderful scene of dialogue where a mother and daughter were talking, but I was shocked when they were broadsided by a semi because the writer had not told me they were in a vehicle. So I had quickly put them on stage in a restaurant um, because the reader has to have an image. Most readers, especially in this century, because we are a very visual society, they are picturing the book as they are reading it. They are trying to make a movie in their head. And if you don't give them cues, and if you don't um, give your character something to do while they're having this dialogue, then you, you're missing out on so much. And you might be confusing the reader or frustrating the reader. And you're slowing down the pace of your book, right? If you have the talking parts and then the doing parts, and they're separate, then we're sitting through a long and somewhat slow talking part, and then we have a long doing part without any talking. If you m combine those, it makes the talking more interesting, and it makes the doing more interesting, and it moves the plot along faster. <laughs> and by giving your character something to do, you can show their emotion. So in, in the um, uh, example that I talked about in the last podcast, 
simply by saying she gripped the steering wheel, that's all we would have needed to know that that character was in a car. And But it also showed us her emotion. It showed that she was gripping it harder than she needed to. Why? So it, bring, it asks questions, which is what great fiction does. That's so good. We're almost out of time, but give us one more mistake that authors make. The last mistake, and I certainly made this, I still do sometimes, and that is um, writers start their story in the wrong place. And I know I did that because I wanted I wanted my readers to know the history, the entire history of each of my characters. So I started with a nice little bio of my characters, where they were born, where they grew up. And I, I realized that, first of all, a story must start at a point of action. Um, you can give us a page of what the, the uh, ordinary world of the character is, but then we must start where the story starts. But the other thing is, is that I realize that when I get to know a new friend, let's say I meet someone at a writer's conference and I'm getting to know them, we don't start out by asking where each other was born and how we grew up and all of that. You, you, Any person that you know, you get to know them a little bit at a time, but you begin right where you both are in life at that moment. And that's how it should be for our characters. And it's okay to write the backstory of a character, right? If you need to write the backstory of the character to get to know them, that's totally okay. But just because you write it doesn't mean you have to publish it. And this is another area where short story writing can actually be really helpful because you can write a short story that explores a location or a character that you don't intend to put in the book, but you're still practicing your writing skills. You're flushing out this character. My brother's writing an epic fantasy series, and it takes place in the aftermath of this big war. And he doesn't want to give the backstory of this big war because it's not really the focus of the story. But he is writing a series of short stories that take place in different parts of the war from different perspectives on different sides of the war because so, he's using it to practice writing point of view, right? He, he wants you to be able to, to um, uh, relate to the various reasons for the various factions of this war to fight. And he's also – they're – visiting different towns and you're meeting some characters that will eventually be in his book and it's allowing him to practice his writing and build his you know uh, consistency of his characters without having to start his actual story with a whole bunch of backstory and if you're curious you're like i would like to learn about the gem war well you sign up for his email list and you'll get one of those short stories Yes, that's just what I was going to say. I'm seeing more and more authors using the, that kind of writing that uh, didn't make it into their book as extra material, extra uh, little treats for their diehard fans. And that, that is great. Um, I, so often I had my editor say at the top of chapter two, it would say, Deb, this is where your book starts. And, <laughs> and they were right. And usually there were maybe only two important nuggets in chapter one that I needed to pull and fit somewhere else in the other story. Um, but the rest of it was really just me getting to know my own characters. And the reader didn't need that. Are you a seat of the pants writer? Yes, I am. <laughs> and that's part of the problem. Okay, that that's a classic sign. Yeah, it, often for Seat of the Pants writers, they kind of have to get revved up a little bit. They kind of need a, to get to a running start, and that's totally fine. In fact, Chapter 2, if you you know cut Chapter 1, will probably start stronger having gotten to that running start. Right? If you have a bunch of people on a running block, right, and one person gets to start ahead of time and he hits the line at a run while everyone else is starting at dead, dead stop – 
the guy with the running start has an advantage. Yes, and it's much more interesting to watch him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and ultimately everyone wants to create that, right? You want to start your book with a bang because you got to hook the reader in. Because while people may guilt themselves into finishing your book if they buy it, they have no um, problems putting the book back in the shelf. On, in the bookstore, right? Yes, if you don't grab them right. in those first few pages in the bookstore while they're doing their initial read or in the sample chapter on their Kindle, they're going to put it back and they're not going to feel bad about that at all. And so you really have to start with a bang. And it doesn't have to be a dead body falling on the floor, right? The bang is dependent on your genre, but it's got to be something. Yes, exactly. So Deb, where can people uh, find out more about you? Well, on my website, deborahrainey.com. And I have a Facebook group for readers. I love Instagram. I'm on Twitter. That's not necessarily my favorite, but you'll find me there uh, at author Deb Rainey, just Deb in that case. And do you offer manuscript critique services? Is that something that somebody could hire? You said you did a bunch of that. I'm curious if that's something you still offer. Well, I do it almost exclusively at conferences. Um, Just because I've already slated that time out, um, I have time to do that at conferences, but my deadlines, and I I also do some editing, uh, not critiquing, and that pretty much keeps me from doing just uh, the kind of critiques that I do at conferences, sadly. Gotcha. (laughs) No, no, no worries. Any final tips or advice? Um. I guess just what we kind of talked about, just know that if you're a new writer, you're not going to learn it all in the first book. You're, I mean, it's it takes time to figure out these things. Um, these are the things that uh, the things that we talked about today that that can make a book look like amateur writing. And if you can fix those, um, you can make a lot of other writing mistakes and get away with it until you have time to to learn those techniques. So. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our sponsor is the Christian Writer's Market Guide. Uh, Deborah and I talked about how you have to have the right bait for the right foot fish. And you may be like, well, how do I find out what a publishing company is looking for? How do I know what an agent or an editor is looking for? Well, guess what? They will tell you. And the answers are in the Christian Writer's Market Guide. It has every major publisher. It has every major a- agent and information from them about what they're looking for. And it has their contact information. So if you want to be able to have the best chance through the slush pile, the Christian Writer's Market Guide is the place to start. You can get it in print edition or what I recommend the online edition, which always has the most up-to-date information. Thank you so much for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. It's always a blast. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.